this, is, this is actually, for me, the last time I'm scheduled to preach here at Southridge. As, as many of you, most of you know, I'm actually transitioning off our staff. So, so if I'm a little more emotional than normal today, some people would call this an excuse. I call it preparation for the first-time visitor who's going, why is he teary? Like, what's wrong with this guy? So, so bear with me. Uh, we're returning to our sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to chapter 2. We will get there. Uh, and Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And you may recall that the reason Paul went to Thessalonica was to help plant a church in that city. And unfortunately, because of persecution, he was only able to stay there for a few weeks. He was actually forced to leave. Nevertheless, the Thessalonians quickly became a model church, even in Paul's absence. They became a model church through their faithful service, through their receptivity towards God's word, and through their evangelistic commitment to turning outward, uh, in terms of sharing the gospel with people around them. Now, the other reason the Thessalonians were a model church is that because for the short time that Paul was there, he conducted a model ministry among them. Now, I don't know about you, but the sort of people that I look to in my faith as a Christian, as one seeking to follow Jesus, I'm, I'm not just looking to people that speak Christianese, I'm not just looking for people who know how to say all the right things. What I'm looking for in a mentor, in someone I can look to as I grow in my own walk with Christ, is someone who is actually applying in their life what it is that God has called them to do and who it is that he's called them to be. Paul was one such person. Thus the reason the church at Thessalonica grew, because in the short time he was with them, he lived out his faith. He says this to the Corinthian church. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And yet, even though Paul is a godly example, a faithful steward, a nurturing parent, if you will, to the Thessalonians, we know that they, like many other churches in that time and in that area, they also dealt with growing pains. They did. What about you? Perhaps you dealt with growing pains when you were a kid and you were, you were getting taller. Maybe you're dealing with growing pains now. Some of you are younger. I don't know what they feel like for super tall people, people like Manute Bowl, like the seven foot seven kind of people. I can't imagine what adolescence feels like for somebody like that. I don't know what they feel like for somebody who's not as tall as me. I'm fairly tall. I'm six foot three. Uh, and so I dealt with growing pains as I was growing up, although some people would say I'm in my mid forties now, so I'm in my losing height years. I'm not real excited about that. Uh, my kids probably like it. They'll get taller sooner. Uh, but I do remember going to my mom as a boy, and I remember say, you know, sort of complaining to her about this pain I was feeling. And for me, it was mainly in my legs and mostly in my knees. And she was a nurse, and actually she was somewhat sympathetic as a nurse. And so she would ask me some questions. She would look at my legs and say, well, what makes it better? What, what makes it worse? And at the end of the, question, uh, the questioning period, she'd say, well, it's probably just growing pains. And she's right. It was. I'm still here. I didn't die of some strange disease. Uh, it was growing pains. And because I grew quickly, I went from 5'8 to 6'3 in just under two years. Uh, for me, they were kind of profound. I don't have anything else to compare them to. They hurt, and I didn't enjoy it. Our boys have started to deal with them now a little bit. And my wife, Kim, has helped them. To, she's the sympath more sympathetic one, I think. She has helped them to, to deal with this by running hot Epsom salt baths. And, uh, you know, for the times they feel particularly achy. I don't know that there is any medicinal benefit from an Epsom salt bath, 
But I do know that a hot soak in, uh, in a tub can help loosen stiff joints and, and uh, relieve aching muscles. So they get some relief in that way, and they seem to sleep better too, so that works. Um, but the truth is about that physical pain can be, or physical growth can be painful. We don't get to our adult size without going through some type of discomfort. Did you know that most of us did, or we will, more than triple our birth height? I started out around 21 inches in length. I'm now 75 inches tall, so I've grown over three and a half times my birth height. That's a lot of growth in the first 16 years of life is sort of when I stopped growing. And for a time in my teens, it wasn't fun. It hurts now, too, but for different reasons. This, this little thing called arthritis, and everybody say, aww. Yeah, poor Kirk. Somebody right now in the room is going, you, just, you, t- you think it hurts now. Wait another 25 years, you'll know what hurt is. <laughs> uh, today's sermon brought to you by Leave. Take as directed. <laughs> well, spiritual growth is not unlike physical growth. It's actually quite comparable to physical growth in a, in a number of ways. First of all, growing spiritually can also be painful. Not physically painful necessarily, but painful nonetheless. For those of us who are Christians, we're not unlike newborns, actually, in that we've had to grow through a lot of faith-testing challenges. The book of James in the New International Version calls these trials and temptations. And in James chapter 1, he writes it this way. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. If I'm completely honest, and honesty is good for everyone, particularly probably pastors on a Sunday morning standing in front of people, I I know that I have not reached full spiritual maturity. Uh, Listening to Mark lead us in worship this morning, talking about forgiveness and grace, I am intimately aware of my sinfulness and that I have not reached the maturity that God desires for me. I'm lacking in some areas, meaning that my spiritual growth is ongoing. Yours probably is too. Too often, I am abrupt and sometimes harsh with people. I miss opportunities to extend grace. I do damage with my tongue. I have a sharp tongue sometimes. Thursday night, I was out with my son, my oldest son, and something really insignificant happened, and it, you would have thought it was the end of the world, and I... I realized in coming down pretty hard on him, I realized, slash uh, translation, the Holy Spirit got all over me, that I had overreacted to something of very little significance. And again, I had to apologize. That's a common theme at our house. I have to apologize. Other times I overdepend on my own wisdom or I listen to my thoughts and I act sinfully rather than trusting and leaning into God and seeking the guidance of his Holy Spirit. It rarely goes well. It usually stings because admitting my own sinfulness and growing to be all that he wants me to be in every area is stretching. And stretching hurts unless you're a yoga expert. And then I don't know how you do it. It hurts me to watch you. But stretching hurts. What about you? How are you when facing trials? How are you when facing difficulties? Are you persevering? James says this in verse four in that same chapter, let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Persevere, press on. To do that, we have to allow the word of God to be at work in us. Now, for the Thessalonians, for Paul, 
uh, it wasn't easy to, to minister in those, in those first century churches in those early cities. And it wasn't easy to be even a Christian in Thessalonica or anywhere else in the first century for that matter. We may find it difficult today. We may complain about the government being intrusive into areas of faith. We may not like everything we see around the world. And certainly there are hardships and there are even horrific things happening in the name of faith to destroy other faiths. We may find it difficult as Christians in North America, in Canada today, but I doubt strongly that any of us has faced the type of trial and persecution, even the threat of death that many people in the first century faced. Sometimes from their own people, sometimes from the Jewish non-believers, sometimes from the oppressive Roman rulers who occupied their countries. They dealt with suffering on levels that most, most of us never will, praise God. And yet they grew in the midst of all of that. In the midst of their suffering, they experienced both spiritual and numeric growth. And the church exploded in growth. And the reason we are here today is because the Holy Spirit of God worked through early churches, people like Paul and the Thessalonians. And this brought great personal joy to Paul. Read along with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. It says this, beginning in verse 13. And we also thank God continually... Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. If we flash back to chapter one in verse two, Paul said something very similar. He said, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. And now here in verse 13, we learn that the reason that he constantly thanked God for them in his prayers is that because they were allowing God's word to work in them. They didn't just nod politely and smile when he taught them the word of God, when he instructed them. You've maybe had those experiences with people where they, you know, they tolerate your faith, they tolerate your, your prayer at a meal, whatever it is. They didn't just nod politely. They actually, they received it and they accepted it. Remember, these people were previously unbelievers. They were not Christians before. And part of the reason for their receptivity was because of how Paul and Silas and Timothy and the others who were with them, because how, of how they lived their faith out among them. They had a powerful preaching and teaching of the word of God, but they also had their witness. His witness, their witness mattered. Our witness, our Christian example matters. And the word that Paul uses here when he, when he talks about accepting the word of God, he says you accepted, it conveys this idea of like an inward welcoming, like a grafting into your being, an embracing, not just a surface acceptance as if it was some type of interesting anecdotal story about a person or a group of people. The Thessalonians believed that unlike the words of men, that the word of God is not empty. It is not powerless. It is not just words on a page. And so Paul rightly points out that God is at work in them because number one, they believe, but number two, because they put that belief into practice. They took steps of faith. And that's what allowed the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts and their minds. In October of 2006, I was still living and working in the United States. I remember this well. Uh, a milk truck driver in a small town in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Amish country. He stopped at a school and for reasons that are still unknown to this day, that are, they're not completely clear to this day, he went into an Amish schoolroom with about 20 or so people 
and he released all of the boys. It's a one-room school, so kids ranging in age from 6 to 13. He released all of the boys. He allowed a pregnant mother to leave. He allowed three parents with infants to leave, and he kept the 10 girls. As the police arrived and tried to convince him to release them, he himself was married with three young children at home. He refused. He barricaded himself in the school, and he shot the 10 hostages in the head. And then he took his own life. Five of the girls survived. The youngest, six years old, lives to this day, unable to speak, unable to walk. She's confined to a wheelchair. She's able to recognize her family. The other girls have challenges. One of the girls is blind in an eye. The others have had surgeries at different times to fix problems associated with, with the violence. They continue to manage. The only clue as to the motive was a suicide note found by the killer's wife. He left four notes, one for each of his children and one for his wife. And in the note, he raged furiously angry towards God. I would suggest that this man failed to put God's word into practice. Rather, he gave into his anger and rage. He misdirected it at God and it led to an attack on people and to death. The story doesn't end there because what's, what's amazing is the response of the Amish community. Do you remember this, some of you? The, the Amish community not only publicly forgave Charles Roberts, CNN was droning on about it for weeks. They couldn't believe the response of these Christians in this tiny, close-knit community. He not, they not only publicly forgave him for wounding and murdering their daughters, 30 of them went to his funeral. They hugged his wife and hugged his children and his parents and her parents. They spent time with them. They invited them to the funerals of their daughters. This grieving community went further than that. They set up a charitable fund to help provide for the future financial and educational needs of his widow and their children. A father of one of the victims was quoted as saying this. He said, we must not think evil of this man. He had a mother and a wife and a soul. And now he's standing before a holy God. I don't believe for one second that a person, never mind an entire community, destroyed, ripped apart by such violence, grieving parents, relatives, friends, I don't believe that they have any ability on their own to possess that kind of capacity to forgive and offer amazing grace toward the killer of their children alone. I believe that putting your faith into practice on that kind of a level in circumstances as horrific and violent as that, that it is only the work of the Holy Spirit that allows that. It only comes through the hearts and the actions of people who have deeply embraced the scriptures and committed to honoring the teachings and the command of Jesus Christ no matter what it costs them. And even though I'm certain that they were committed to their faith and they remain committed to Jesus, I am certain to this day it remains a very hard, even a painful exercise to continue to forgive. 
In addition to being painful, spiritual growth is comparable to physical growth in that it also requires ongoing nourishment. It's not a once a one-time thing. It, re- it needs to be sustained just like our physical bodies. It's one thing to know that we're on a path towards spiritual maturity, working towards what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter four, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's one thing to know that philosophically, but it is entirely another matter to consistently and effectively nurture our growth, keeping it healthy and vibrant. And just as physical growth can be stunted, if not properly nourished, I don't know, I was always told as a kid, you shouldn't drink coffee, it'll stunt your growth. Didn't seem to have any much impact on me, unless I was going to be seven foot seven, I don't know. Uh, But uh, just like physical growth can be stunted when it's not nourished, the same is true for spiritual growth. It, It will be hindered if we neglect it. And the outcome will be spiritual immaturity. Paul addresses this with the Corinthian church in chapter three of his first letter to the Corinthians. He rebukes them for persisting in their immaturity and for continuing to live by human standards rather than God's standards. He calls them immature. In Thessalonica, Paul deeply loves the church at Thessalonica and he wants them to continue to grow and to flourish in their faith in Christ. In verse uh, verses 14 to 15, he says that he observes how how they became imitators of the established churches, the churches that existed before they did in Judea. He says, you've become imitators of them. And he says, that's a good thing. It's good for you to imitate the churches in Judea. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he tells them how the persecution that they are facing from their fellow citizens is designed to keep them from sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, the unbelieving people in their midst. And then in verse 17 to 18, we get a sense of his real commitment, his real love for this church. In the heart and the tone of a pastor, he tells them this. He says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come, you certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. In compelling and emotive language, Paul's letters often describe his strong love for the churches he served. Think of all of his letters, how they open. Brothers, brothers, sisters, dearly beloved. This passage is no different, and here we sense his deep affection breathed into every word. And even across the centuries, his love is perceptible in the sentences. He says, we were orphaned by being separated from you. Being torn away delivers for me this image of a parent who is deeply grieved over the loss of a child. Last week, I heard the story of a 15-year-old boy in Pennsylvania uh, who, I think he was at his school for a tennis thing, or he went back to his van in the parking lot to get something out of his parents' van. He opened the side door, he climbed in, he reached over the back seat, and as he reached into the well, the seat well at the back, the seat collapsed backwards, it released because it wasn't properly secured. Parents, if you drive a van, make sure your seats are locked down. And it collapsed into the well with him head down, pinned, unable to get out. Face down in the storage bin, he couldn't free himself. He called 911 for help twice, gave his location, the license plate, the address, everything. They didn't find him in time. He suffocated and he died. It was horrific. Tragically, his father found him six hours later. And I cannot even begin to imagine the pain and the grief that he felt. And Paul's grief here, this separation, this ripping away, this this idea of being orphaned, 
from the church, separated from the church and the people he loved, while different than the permanent grief of a parent over the loss of a child, it's still very heavy on Paul. He wanted to be with them, physically with them. He longed to invest in them. He wanted to shepherd them, to teach them more of God's word and to watch them grow and continue to flourish in their faith. But just as Satan does, he blocked the way. He tried. He will block our way too. He will block yours. Some of you today, this week. Some of you, there's a massive stone in the road that you feel powerless to move because Satan has blocked the way at reconciliation, at sharing the gospel, perhaps. Because here's the thing, Satan not only wants to hinder Christians who want to grow themselves, he wants to prevent us from sharing the gospel so that others don't come to faith in Jesus. He doesn't want anybody to hear that name, except maybe as an expletive. He certainly doesn't want us to encounter grace and to come to faith, and he definitely doesn't want you and I to share our faith. He will try to block our way. That's why the Bible in 1 Peter calls Satan our enemy and says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's you and that's me. He's coming after us, followers of Jesus. So for Christians, it is imperative that we protect against this, that we ensure that we are nurturing our faith, that we are keeping ourselves rooted and strong and in Christ so that we can continue to grow and so that we are prepared when God ordains opportunities for us to share with others. We've got to, because he wants to block our way, Satan does. We practice that preparation through what some people call the spiritual disciplines, things like, and you know them, Things like reading your Bible, even studying your Bible, not just reading it, but studying it, uh, developing a healthy and a regular prayer life. This, gathering as a church to fellowship with one another, to pray for one another, to worship Jesus together, even to, to build accountability with another Christian to help us with our struggles and our challenges in our faith. Perhaps, Nurturing our faith in a different context, in a, in a community group, smaller than this, but bigger than one or two. These are the things that allow us to overcome the obstacles that Satan puts before us. Certainly your personal discipleship and your personal time, your quiet time with the Lord is important and he will use that, but he will also use the corporate body, this thing he calls the church, this thing that Paul deeply treasured and loved. Now, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, avoid the temptation to just be your Christian self and hope that other people figure out why you are the way you are. That's not a witness. A witness testifies. A witness lives out actively. A witness, when called into a court, is there for a reason, a stated reason. Don't just live out your faith and don't state the reason. When someone says, why are you different? Say, God's made a huge difference in my life. I, I've, I've been a lot of things in my life, but God has, God has impacted my life and God's changed me. And I'm the way I am, flawed as I am, because he's working in my life. That's why I'm different. It's not missional living to hope other people get it by osmosis. Instead, live your life on mission like Paul did. He deliberately displayed his faith and he built into others as one who was committed to helping make disciples. That's our call, church. Our, our charge from the Lord Jesus himself is to go and make disciples. That's why God still has you and I here. If he was done with us, we wouldn't be here, right? 
If you have life, you have breath, you have a mission, you have a witness. Let's live it out. Mr. Dan Lasky is a gentleman here at Southridge. He's been attending here for a while now. I talked to him on the phone this week. Uh, He comes with some of his family. We spoke the other day. He told me a story about how around 18 months ago, because he had begun to read a Bible that his sister had gave him, uh, that his life was impacted. When he said that, I couldn't help but smile because that's my sister gave me my first Bible and, and that changed my life. And so Dan goes on and he tells me how he began to read the Gospel of John and when he came to verses 25 to 26, something incredible happened for him. Dan, as he's reading this, is not a Christian. He was not a believer. His translation is the King James and so he read those two verses in these words. He said, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then the question from Jesus, believest thou this? Dan said, at that moment, it was just as if Jesus was speaking to me directly. He said that I needed to believe. And so I did. I decided to believe in Jesus and everything changed, including my interests. The truth is that Satan wants to block the way for people, people like you and me, people like Dan, but God is infinitely more powerful. And Dan today is a growing Christian because number one, his sister shared with him, right? She shared with him, she gave him God's word, and she encouraged him to read his Bible. And number two, he listened. He did what she asked him to do, and he listened when Jesus said, you need to believe. And that is worth celebrating. That's worth celebrating. When a person comes to faith in Christ, that's worth celebrating. So let's recap. Spiritual growth can be painful sometimes. It requires ongoing nurture or it'll become stagnant. Lastly, it's intended to be, to occur in regular and sustained fashion over the course, the full course of our lives. Because growing into mature believers is more than just believing in God and in Jesus. It's orienting our entire life around his will for us. And that's a process. It's a process. My, my pastor at my last church, a guy named Rick Hale, a godly man, love him. He used to say, you have to take the long view with people because where they are today is not where they'll be in a few years, but it certainly isn't where they were before they knew Christ. You have to take the long view with people. It's a process. So we have to take seriously, you and I, we have to take seriously the sin that is within us. And Paul puts it like this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, you may grow up in your salvation. He says, persevere over the long haul of life. He says, now do this now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How are you doing in terms of your walk with Christ? Are you making consistent steps? Have you started yet? Or are you sort of at the, I'm considering Jesus, I'm considering faith stage of things. It's okay if you are. Whether you are engaged in all of the the right sort of spiritual growth, nurturing things, praying, worshiping, giving, loving others, serving, whether you're engaged in all of those or not, or, or you're still at the considering faith stage, we all need to do one thing, and that's take steps forward. We all need to take steps. Steps are different. And, and as your church, we do want to support you as you take steps. As a community of people who love Jesus 
and want his best for you, not our mission for you, his mission for you. As your church, we want to help you. That's our commitment to you. So if we can help you grow, if we can help you take steps, whether it's connecting with a place where you can ask questions about faith or whether it's getting into a regular Bible study or finding a community group or whatever it is, memorizing scripture, whatever it is, however we can help you take steps, we want to do that. Now, like I said at the start, this is, I, I'm, I'm leaving the church staff and so uh, in, in the near future here. And so uh, I'm risking getting a little emotional here, but I think I'm actually, I'm in a good place right now. Um, our, our family's plan, our, our plan is to remain at Southridge. That will be hard. It will be challenging for me, anybody who knows me, it will be challenging for me to step out of leadership and at some point re-enter the building as Kirk with no keys. So it's going to be challenging for sure. And while it's not at all what Paul experienced in terms of separation from his beloved church at Thessalonica, I can tell you that the decision to leave the staff was not an easy one because we love this church. We do. We love the people here. We do. We are thankful that God has placed us here. This is home for us. So I can relate on some level to what Paul says Next, as he lavishes love on his beloved church at Thessalonica, he says this, he says, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, church? He says, indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul spoke of the Thessalonians as being his joy. The Greek word he uses is it's a weird word, I'm not going to pronounce it, but it's spelled kara, C-H-A-R-A. It means a joy that is received from others. It's the exact same word, hear this, it's the exact same word used in Matthew 2.10 to describe the joy of the wise men as they came from the east following the star that would lead them to Jesus. Same word. It's the same word used to describe the joy of a new person who comes into faith in, in Jesus as they cross over from unbelief into belief. It's the same word used to describe the joy of a new Christian convert responding to the gospel for the first time. Interestingly, Pastor West was telling me the other day how, in addition to, to Mr. Dan, how two other men he knows in our church have come to faith in the past two weeks. I'm going to tell you, there's something going on at Starbucks down the hill because people are getting saved in conversations there. God's at work through Southridge. He is. He's at work in you. He's at work in people here, in ministries here. God is on the move. He is. And he wants to be working in and through you and I. Allowing his word to work first in us, like the Thessalonians, is how that process starts and it's how it's sustained. Get into his word. Get into his word every day, a couple minutes, an hour. Get into his word. There's all kinds of ways to access God's word. Bible reading apps, an actual Bible, devotionals, all kinds of stuff. Get into God's word. You'll be glad you did. And here's the thing. The people that you're going to live your life and your faith in front of are going to get more of Jesus because you are connected, because you are growing than they would if you weren't. Get into God's word. Let me pray for you. 
Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that you have called to be here in this place, to love your son, to serve you, to grow together here, to take the long view of the process of maturity with one another, to show grace, to extend love to one another in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for the opportunity to grow together. You call us to be mature and complete, and yet you tell us, and you're patient with us, and, you, and we know that it's a process. But God, light a fire in our hearts today, in our minds today. Stir in us, God, in a way that only you can, a desire to be in your word so that it begins to transform and change our hearts, our minds, so that we begin to live out more boldly with more courage and more conviction the calling you've placed on each of us to make disciples, to lead others to faith in your son, Jesus. Lord, we need you to do this. Today, some of us, before we leave the building, we will be faced with the opportunity to depart from what we've heard today, to sin, to violate your call in our lives. And yet, God, you are gracious to us. And so, God, keep us centered and focused on Christ. And Lord, as we worship in the next few minutes, would you use the words of these songs to draw our hearts even closer to you, Lord? Would we avoid the temptation to just come here once a week for a recharge and just go out and drain ourselves again and come back and recharge? God, help us sustain our faith this week that we may honor you, that we may honor the sacrifice of Jesus, that we may be a church like the one at Thessalonica, that if Paul was here, he would say, you are my beloved church because you have been faithful. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.